You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Thank you so much for sitting with me after the practice. It's so nice to practice today. And thanks for staying for the meditation. It's, I believe, very important to take time at the end of each practice and extend the vibration of what we call metta towards ourselves and towards all beings. And there are many different fields that the vibration of metta can take, but it's very important that everyone at least takes a few moments to understand that we are practicing not only for the benefit of ourselves, but for the benefit of all beings. And that our liberation doesn't stop with us, but that our liberation is tied to and connected with the liberation of all beings. Those whom we like and those whom we do not like. This is important, right? Because we may think, oh, this person I like. Yes, I send them metta, like gifts, you know? <laughs> But like the sun shines equally, you know, on all, all beings on the planet, the practice of metta is universal because it's a recognition of the spark of the divine in every being. How far away that being is from the divine is the difficulty to send metta. To conquer every obstacle of the heart is the journey of yoga. What obstacles of the heart? Some people are maybe familiar with what we call the enemies of the heart. We can think of these uh, very similar to the seven deadly sins, right? So the enemies of the heart, we have anger, we have pride, we have jealousy. They start to feel like, yes, if I'm feeling angry towards someone, I can't send the metta. The heart is blocked. If I feel jealous towards someone, I cannot send metta. Again, the heart is blocked. You know, if I'm feeling prideful, if we feel too much pride, we cannot send metta because we are separated. Pride is a separation. So when we have these enemies of the heart, Guilt and shame is another enemy of the heart. Who does guilt and shame block us off from sending metta towards? Yourself. You feel guilty. You feel shameful. You feel unworthy. You can't send metta towards yourself. Many people who are yoga practitioners have the hardest time with self-metta. Many people have a hard time with self-metta. They think, what did I do to deserve this love? You know, what did I do? What did, what's special about me? And what we always say is that you showed up. That's it. That's all it takes, you know, that you're here, nothing more. So sometimes it's useful when we practice self-metta, like what we did today, is to be very specific for things that you can quantify. Oh, I did that. Yes, I finished the practice. I didn't run away. I can celebrate that. Look, I've made it through. Wonderful. And then you can even see, look, this other person, they left early. I stayed. Yay for me, you know? We don't need to then make some calculation. Oh, but I didn't do this asana well, and I didn't do that asana well. I didn't do this one well. I didn't do that one well. We don't need to go there. Just the fact that we finished it. It means I celebrate. Wonderful. I celebrate the work I put in. Great. Then it's very important when practicing self-metta to include your body, because the body is the vehicle that we exist here in this incarnation. We practice self-metta. This is important. But that being said, if you're trying to think about spending little time after the practice in metta and it's difficult for you to do self-metta, then you can just say, I'm grateful for the work I put in and let that be enough. It starts to bring up obstacles for you. 
So the work that we do to remove obstacles is never complete. And this is something that I want to share uh, from the teacher's perspective, is that all of your teachers are not enlightened masters sitting on the other side of some wall of awakening. We're on the path also. We have our obstacles, myself included also. We struggle with the same enemies around the heart as everyone or students on the path, just like you. We share the path together. And this is extremely important when we think about the idea of what it takes or when we think about what qualifies an individual as a yoga teacher. And I know that some of you who are here have just finished this, are just on the last day of this course with us. And many of you here might already be teaching or thinking about teaching. And when we think about the journey to become a teacher, this does not follow a linear trajectory like the journey to become, say, a doctor or something like this. We don't have this kind of, well, you graduate this level and you pass this test and then now you can teach. It doesn't necessarily work like that. It's a nonlinear journey to find the qualities within yourself that you can share through the vehicle of teaching. My yoga teacher, Patabi Joyce, uh, didn't believe in teacher trainings because he wanted each individual to look within and find the qualities that they would share when they showed up for other individuals uh, you know, in teaching. And his idea was that if you create a, a sort of universal standard for yoga teaching or spiritual teaching, then this can turn what is a holistic experience into kind of a bunch of boxes that you check off. And when we have these boxes that we check off, we're like, oh, have they studied anatomy? Oh, yeah. So they know all the muscles of the shoulder. Yes, you can check that off. You definitely need that on some level. But the, you know, do they know all of the asanas in Sanskrit? We can check that off, you know, and then we can check off. Do they know how to uh, do a physical assist? You can check that off. In Ashtanga, we have to check, do they know the vinyasa counts, right? Many of you... (laughs) terrified of that one. (laughs) So we have these boxes we can check off. And I can tell you something. You can have someone that they know every asana name in Sanskrit. They have memorized every single muscle in the entire human body and every ligament and every bone and every organ that's in there. And they can tell you how many, how many cells are in the brain. And they've memorized all of the vinyasa counts. Right? <laughs> Carol's like, oh, yeah, that's a lot. From all the series, not even only primary series, you know? And then all the asana names in Sanskrit, even they can say all of the, you know, key phil- philosophy words, but that doesn't make them a teacher. And we think about, well, then what is teaching? So if they check off all the boxes, but it still doesn't work. And what is it? Then you can have someone else say, imagine a yogi 2,000 years ago who maybe learned the asanas. But before we had this uh, dissection of the human body, didn't have all of the words for your, the, the, all the intricate muscles of the rotator cuff or all the intricate muscles of the, the hip muscles. And then this yogi knows the body intimately, but doesn't have the words to describe, well, it's this muscle that does like this and this muscle that does like that. And then yet, because their experience is so grounded, they hold the space of yoga. So I would like to present the idea of the qualification to teach yoga as the ability to bring forth whatever your personal experience is in the practice, to have it be grounded in the depth of your personal experience and to be able to 
hold the space of whatever that experience is. So this requires all the teachers to be students more than anything else. And if that space starts to dissipate and what can make the space dissipate, we go back, we look at the enemies of the heart. Pride is one of the biggest obstacles of the teacher. Because as soon as you become a source of knowledge, then you can let that go to your head. Oh, I must be someone now. Look, I say, Akum, inhale. And everybody, <laughs> they raise their hands. I tell them chaturanga and look, half stay, right? <laughs> so we can start to think, gosh, I must be really someone. Look, uh, wow. And then we can have a prideful idea. Oh, well, I'm better than. And this is the downfall of many teachers. This is a corruption of the innocent heart that's required to stay the course on the path of yoga. So when you think about the journey to become a teacher, probably the most important thing that I would give everybody as a piece of parting wisdom is that it is first and foremost, not a career path. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was invited to a yoga panel discussion years ago years ago by someone, uh, you know, in a big yoga conference. And um, what ended up happening, the first question was, what advice do you have to give to new yoga teachers? So I thought, okay, what advice do you have? And I wasn't the first person on the panel. And the first, the person who came before me was, you need a marketing plan. You have to market, market, market. And then the person went into this whole details about marketing and marketing and marketing. And then, and then the idea was that um, it was just all business, marketing, business, marketing. And the person had a lot to say about how to run a good business and do good marketing endeavors. And I felt like this is, this is very useful. I think this is useful information, but this is not the beginning of what you want to tell people about teaching. You know, if we're thinking about how to be a yoga teacher, what's the first advice to be a yoga teacher? My opinion, the first advice is never stop being a student because as soon as you stop being a student and you focus too much on the business of it or you focus too much on the career path of it and you write out your marketing plan and you know you come up with your branding package and you know if you run a business, you have to do all of that. You have to just to exist in the world. You come up with your social media strategy and your, you know, key points of what you're going to talk about and you make your hashtag and all of that. Um, and, and you do that, but you can, again, check off all the boxes and then, eh, then what? If the heart space isn't maintained, then it, there's, it's just, a, it's already failed to start. It's doomed to fail from the very, very beginning or you're doomed to an extensive burnout. Um, and the only way to really keep true to the integrity of the practice is to place the student's journey uh, first and foremost, whether, whether you're teaching for a year or you're teaching for 10 years or 20 years. So it's super important to keep the student's aspect. And what's the antidote to pride if we're thinking about pride? Humility. And there's nothing more humbling than going and taking someone's class and feeling like you can't do anything, you know? And like, oh, I'm this big yoga teacher. Here I go. And then you're like, I can't do this. And then you realize, oh, I, yeah, this is nice. I'm, you know, still struggling here and there. This is good, you know? So it's, it's very important to temper, um, you know, temper any, any false sense of hubris that may arise with a good dose of humility. And those individuals without teachers, what I notice is there's no tempering. 
uh, and if the individual is not a student on some level, then it begins to, they begin to be very isolated. And isolation is another um, kind of damaging quality for anyone in a position of power, whether that's a yoga teacher or anyone in a position of power. A healthy community that can offer constructive feedback and especially can say when um, you're out of line is a very important uh, part of a healthy community. And I think that's also a big part of um, figuring out the teacher's journey is how to, how to stay open to, um, you know, uh, feedback from your community, feedback from those around you about isolating yourself in a wall of false perfection. Why do I say false perfection is because none of us are perfect. Um, and, and, and this is very important for many years, the Ashtanga yoga method kind of had this deification of our founder, Patabi Joyce. And we treated Patabi Joyce like he was a, a totally perfect human being. And this was a big mistake that our community made. And we suffered some consequences because of that. And I'm hoping that as we continue to share this method, that it won't continue. Um, and that we'll see our teachers as fellow students on the path, as human beings that have what I often refer to as deferential authority rather than absolute authority. I'd like to just unpack that a little bit. Um, so absolute authority is when you give 100% of your agency over to someone else. Or, any, or, or another being. There are certain times when you have to, uh, when, you, when, when absolute authority is, is required. Um, you know, you, if you pass through the border of some country and they tell you what to do, you have to do exactly what they say, right? At that point, it's a good idea. Absolute authority to all the immigration officers and the whole planet. <laughs> Better for you, okay? Deferential authority is an authority that you take on good measure and you take on good note, but you're willing to also include your own agency. For example, when you use Google Maps, this is deferential authority, not absolute authority. So I don't know how many of you have gone according to the Google Map until you decided, let me just turn over here anyway. It looks like I go over there. And then the thing recalculates and maybe you did something good or maybe you did something bad. Sometimes I have not listened to the Google Map and then I found myself in a giant construction zone that I didn't know about because suddenly they, Miami suddenly they construct things. Overnight, they, you know, a giant crater is there and half a high rise exists. You're like, that wasn't there last week. Okay, Google knew, but I did not know. So deferential authority is you, 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 you follow generally, but if your voice inside says, this is not for me, then you try your own way. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work. Deferential authority is what you want to have towards most yoga teachers because we want to think, well, if this makes sense, it's working for me, then yes, I'm willing to give it a try. But you also want to reserve a little voice inside of yourself that says, hmm, maybe I could try it this way also. Because you don't know that way that's in your little voice inside of yourself might be better. And you might help your teacher by trying it out. So if you say, well, I know you want me to do it like this, but what if I try like that? you could be presenting and co-creating kind of like a new method that may help another student if your teacher is open to it. Of course, if the teacher is open to it. There are many teachers that are not necessarily open to that two-way communication. And this I, this I believe is um, a space we need to update in our Ashtanga world. So I started off teaching Ashtanga yoga, not because uh, I woke up one morning and thought, now I make a career path to do Ashtanga yoga. I actually never thought I wanted to be a yoga teacher. 
It was never within my realm of what I thought. When I started practicing, I just thought, wow, this is, this is awesome. This is cool. I like this. Let me, let me do it again. I did uh, kind of like a, a gentle Hatha yoga from the Shivananda tradition for like around three years. I took my first Hatha yoga class when I was 19. It's kind of like dabbled around in it. And I thought it was nice to stretch and to try to calm down after partying all night. I thought, let's do a little yoga in the morning. <laughs> that was my first morning yoga class, stay up all night and then come to yoga in the morning, which was evening yoga, but it was morning yoga. <laughs> so after some time, um, I, I know, I, again, it was never in my realm of ideas. I thought, ah, oh, well, I'm going to go to a graduate school in New York City. And then I thought, then I, I eventually thought to myself, eventually, Kino, you have to get some real job. So during my whole uh, graduate school, I took all these internships to try to get a job. I worked at this magazine. I worked at this like think tank. I worked in this like political field. And then I worked for a record company. I was just like working anywhere just to try to work for a publishing company for a little bit. And the whole time I was doing yoga and I'd planned my first trip to India and every situation I encountered when I came back from India, not before, after my first trip to India, every interaction that I had ended with what do you do? Are you really just a student? So for example, I was also working as a journalist and I, I had the idea that there were many different career paths that I wanted to take. None of them included yoga teaching. Um, so I would introduce myself as like, hi, I'm a student and a journalist and I'm a writer and you know, I'm going to, I'm, I'm continuing my graduate school. I would just introduce myself as all different things to like try on different real jobs, you know? Um, and then what would end up, the conversation would end with, are you really just a journalist or something else, you know? And I would end up with saying something like, well, I just came back from India and I spent two months studying with, you know, this yoga master, Patabi Joyce in Mysore. It's a South Indian city. And, you know, this is what it is. It's a practice called Ashtanga yoga. And then the conversation would immediately go to, great, can you teach me? <laughs> and I'd be like, no, did I say I was a yoga teacher? No, I said I went to study yoga. You know, imagine you said, oh, I went to do, I went to study medicine for two months. Oh, come make an operation on my brain. That sounds wonderful. No, I felt like, no, I'm not qualified. And I would like have this list of yoga teachers I would refer people to. Go practice with this person, with this person, with this person, with this person. And then they would pester me and say, no, it, it sounds really nice what you experienced. We really, I want to learn from you. And uh, I started teaching like that because people kept pestering me and I kept trying to send them to different places. There were a few people I felt I couldn't say no to. My thesis advisor was one of them because I felt like at some moment this is going to go bad for me because he's going to, you know, it's going to like flunk me because I wouldn't go teach him about sun salutations. So, so then I just, I, and then what I did was I said, I, I fine, I'll come and share with you what I learned when I was in India under one condition. Don't pay me anything. I won't receive any money, please, no money. And I was a student, I could have used the money, but I said, please, there's no money. And so I showed up and they tried to give me money. No, no, I won't take it. So then the people started giving me a lot of food. Um, <laughs> take this muffin, oh, thank you. <laughs> give it to a homeless person, take the muffin. You know? you know what I mean? I don't have anything against muffins, but there's only so many of them um, you can have. Uh, <laughs> So, so I started teaching like that. And, and for until my teacher, Patabi Joyce, uh, said to me officially, yes, you can teach. I never introduced myself as a yoga teacher. It just didn't feel right. I, I, my first like two trips to, my, to India, I introduced myself as I'm a journalist, I'm a writer, 
I'm this, I'm that. But do you teach? No, 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 no. I had been teaching, but I wouldn't say to anyone that I'd been teaching. I felt like I'd committed some sin. In fact, I felt so guilty about the, the people that I'd been teaching that I walked into my teacher's office with my head like this. And I said, I'm really sorry, uh, but I have to tell you something. I'm like, what's going on? What's wrong with you? And I'm normally, I'm not like, I was like, so at home, um, somebody asked me to teach them yoga and I did it. I taught them. Oh, you taught, you taught? Yes, me. I'm really sorry. I, I, I never do it again. It's not for me. I'm very, very sorry. Okay. Okay. Two more trips. Authorization, no problem. Oh, but I, then I felt terrible. But I wasn't asking for the authorization. I don't need to be a yoga teacher. I'm so sorry. And I felt like, because many people go in and say, can you give me the authorization? Can you do this? And I was like, no, no, I didn't ask for that. Yes, next time. And then it became two trips. And it became next time. And then, you know, and then, then I got the paper. And after I got the paper, then I said, okay, now, now I feel I can teach. I have my teacher's blessing. I have the formal approval. At that moment, I started to introduce myself as a yoga teacher. I will tell you full circle. Now, when I meet a stranger, I try not to say I'm a yoga teacher because what usually happens, and many of you who are teaching, you know this, if you meet a stranger and they say, you say you're a yoga teacher, what happens next? Oh, I have some back pain. Do you think uh, maybe you can help me out? I'm like, no, we're on an airplane. I cannot help you out. Here, go take this video. Go on my YouTube channel. Oh, but actually, what do you think? Once I tried yoga three years ago, and I don't want to hear about this. I'm on an airplane. What do you, uh, you know what I mean? So, yeah, come up with something else. I'm back to a journalist. I'm back to a writer. I'm a writer. What do you write about? I write about God. Then they leave you alone. Oh, okay. <laughs> So I want to encourage each of you that's thinking about teaching um, to not be afraid and also at the same time, not treat it as a career path. And that's important because when your heart opens to something and the, the universe or the world around you starts to give you the feedback that this synchronicity is starting to open up within you, then at some moment you accept, you say yes. But if you jump the gun and you start treating it like an object that you can control and force, then what ends up happening is you move yourself further and further away from the heart of the practice, which is the student's journey. So we have to find a balance between doing enough to make sure we have a livelihood, especially if that's all you want to do with your life and it's in your heart, and being able to stay true to the spiritual integrity of the practice. That's a little bit of a give and take, a little bit of a give and take. You may go too much on one side and too much on the other side. You may do so much integrity that you have no marketing plan. <laughs> that also doesn't necessarily work. You know, I'm just going to stay here in this room until the students come. And you also have maybe put up a sign. <laughs> Somebody's just going to knock on a random door. So we have to kind of have one foot in tradition and one foot in reality. And this mix is something that's very difficult to find. And it's useful if we have those tools of community. And it's useful if we have the tools of, uh, of having a teacher so that we can have these, the, the mirror of equals or peers constantly shining on us so that we don't wall ourselves off into some kind of ivory, ivory tower of pride uh, that divorces us from the real work that's necessary to keep the, keep the heart open on the path. Many people have different stories and journeys of how they ended up teaching. And one of the things that I find is that the people who usually say, I never really wanted to teach, but people started asking me. At that point, then, then there starts to be a unique meeting. Now, if you're not that person, it's okay. But I would just recommend 
to not push if the whole world isn't saying, hey, you know, do you want to teach? Hey, do you want to teach? And for those of you who are getting those messages from the world, if you get enough of them, say yes, you know? So one of the things that comes up very often is what's referred to as imposter syndrome. Have you heard about this? This is when you show up and it's you, but you feel like you're not worthy of being there. You feel like an imposter. Like I'm not a real yogi. I shouldn't be here. I'm not worthy. And that's in your mind. And it's a sabotage sort of moment where you are there, but you do a really, really bad job because in your mind, you're questioning yourself the whole time. Should I this? Should I that? Should I this? Should I that? Should I count in Sanskrit or should I not count in Sanskrit? Should I tell them to breathe or do they already know how to breathe? Gosh, I don't know. Should I make them do chaturanga or is like plank enough? I mean, I, 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 I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe just plank for a little, little bit. Just lie there. You look like, <laughs> you know, so then you can just kind of implode under imposter syndrome. So this is one thing that um, uh, one of my first teachers told me when I said, I'm not Avail, like I can't go. I've, I'm def, I've, I've only been to Mysore for two months and studied with Patabi Joyce for two months. I'm definitely not qualified to teach. One of my teachers at the time said to me, look, if it's you or no one else, then you do the best you can. But if it's you or no one else, then it has to be you, right? Because if it's not you, then it's no one. And then this person may have lost the window that they were interested in the practice. You see, people are not open <laughs> for the, the, the deep spiritual practice all the time. Something happens in the life circumstance, some moment of inspiration. And then the person says, maybe I should start yoga. So many people start yoga because of back pain or neck pain or emotional pain. They're suffering on some level. And so that suffering is the window that cracks open the heart and that calls you into the practice. So if someone has that opening and they're looking at you and there's no one else and you say no, then you're not only... Uh, then you're responsible for them potentially missing that opening. So if it's you or no one else, it's you, you know? And then you have to understand that the only thing you can do is do the best you can. Mm -hmm. So that's an important thing, I think, to remember, right? And the idea of, again, teaching is something sacred, something to be considered respectfully, something to be considered with humility, and not something to be treated again, as I mentioned, just as, as, as a, as a money-making endeavor. Um, we're householders, so we need to have some fair living wage to exist. You know, many people say, oh, yoga should be free. I'm like, okay, I'm totally happy if yoga were free. Can you please also talk to the bank and the power company and the internet company and the water company and say, look, we're a yoga business, so all is free. So provide us with all the free things. And then I also will come and teach for free. Also give little free food and wonderful. Great. We make like a little yoga commune. Fantastic. An intentional yoga community. And then all of the, you know, but then who's going to pay the FPNL, the Florida Power and Light Workers to go over there because, oh, I have to give Monday free because all the power goes to the yoga center on Monday. All the yogis are getting power. So I give this. So then they're going to look to the government. I must be free on Monday. My house is also free. Look, if everything was free, wonderful. But they say in the life of the householder that it's a fair exchange. But where it is meant to be free or entirely donation is if you have the path of what's called a renunciate. So if you're all following that path of renunciation at that point, then you've taken a vow not to participate in an economic exchange of the world. So at that point, it is, it, it, it's not necessarily free, but it's dana or giving.
and this is the giving of alms. And there are many uh, teachers within India, particularly when they're teaching some very sacred uh, teachings, who will not accept money for their teaching. And there are teachers, like even householders, when they teach a particular type of a philosophy, Tim's philosophy teacher, for example, when he's teaching some of the most sacred scriptures, Tim is trying to pay him something. And then his teacher says, I refuse. I cannot take payment when I teach this. And then, and then Tim uh, says, you have to take payment. I refuse to take payment. So then Tim puts an envelope on the desk <laughs> that he has forgotten. <laughs> and then, you know, and then actually in, in, in Tim's philosophy teacher is so humble. So he opened the envelope and he said, this is too much. I don't accept it. And gave it back to him. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know, you have to go with muffins. I guess we're back to muffins. <laughs> you know what I mean? A lot of muffins. Um, or with Tim, it's donuts. So, yeah. So there are many journeys to go on. Wherever you are in your journey, I want you to validate and honor that. Whether you're in the student's path and you thought, I have a lot of studying to do. Whether you're on the border of maybe I'm going to teach, maybe I'm not going to teach. Or you're teaching already and you, you're staying true to the student's journey. So I want you to honor wherever you are on that path. And, and, and just keep putting in the work, okay? Now we have a little bit of time for some questions. So please feel welcome to ask any questions that come up or anything that's arisen, especially for those of you that have been here for this period of time. Um, I don't know if Tim's gonna come back in for the questions. You wanna see? Okay. Should also, you should also be here too for the questions, I think. I have a question. Sure. It's regarding uh, Mm -hmm. And typically, something that Mahatma said, and we say four to five minutes before to the last ten, I'm going to Meta. Sometimes I find it really hard because of the discomfort. Mm, good question. And so, like, when, in, when you're focusing on breath, that anchor is really good. Yep. And you can sit with discomfort. And then when you switch to Meta, I'm like, Hello, I'm hating this right now. Mm -hmm. It's over. <laughs> mm -hmm. I want to come up. But it's like, no, you absolutely need to relax yourself to practice metta. So often I don't change position because I'm not in pain, but I will, I often change position if I do a very long sit. So if I, if I sit for more than an hour at the end of the hour and I usually change for metta, um, sometimes not, but mostly yes. Um, so change your posture, relax yourself, try not to lie down. If you need to lie down for a minute to release the legs, come back to seated, but then just choose a comfortable posture. So in sitting, we try to keep the, it's also very important in sitting meditation to remain upright. If it's if a lot of pain, lean against the wall, but try not to lie down unless you're in severe pain. You know, like severe pain, you've just had an operation, something like this. You know, like people have a different, different concept of the word severe. So like if you, if you just had an operation, you know, you've gotten to an accident, you're in severe pain, you lie down. If you're irritated, Try to sit there, all right? So when we sit in seated meditation, um, the, the brainstem, and there's a particular word for this, I think it's called the reticular formation, and the brainstem has uh, roots down in the entire spinal cord. And when you sit upright, it stimulates the brainstem to be alert, attentive, and increases our power of, of awareness and mindfulness. This is also traditionally or mystically, it said we'll reach our deepest states of meditation and upright posture. So for any sort of sati practice, mindfulness practice, we want to be seated as much as possible or upright as much as possible. In metta, you can relax your posture. You can sit like this. You can move around. You can like switch position as much as you want. Hi, Tim. I said you could come in for the questions. 
Yeah. Now they can see you at home too. Do you have any questions for Tim about how he tortured you during the primary series practice? Then. <laughs> so you change of position. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Question here, Pino. Um, hi. Ryan from Nashville. Hey. Uh, hi. Um, you, you were mentioning earlier about uh, one of the outcomes of being in control of, of it as, you know, experiencing level of burnout. And my question is very simple. When, when that happens, how have you dealt with it or how do you recommend dealing with that point when you've reached a, a kind of a burnout on something? Because I'm, I'm experiencing that now, not in my yoga practice, or, or but in another area um, of something that I'm learning. And like, what, what do you think is, a good way to like when you find yourself just totally burning out on something to where you, you know, the effort to try to do it is just feels like impossible. Mm -hmm. No, thanks for the question. Repeat the question. So the question was, Oh, what about the burnout when we're, when we're, when I, when I was talking in about when we're trying to control an outcome too much, it can lead to burnout. And the question is, so he's not experiencing burnout in the yoga practice, but in some other situation in the life where he's trying to learn. This happens in yoga, also in the life circumstance. We can experience many burnouts. I have experienced burnout. I know you have too. I'm sure everyone has. Um, maybe I can share and then you can also share what, uh, what, what you can do. So when, whenever I've, I've experienced burnout, number one, it comes from taking it way too seriously. Like I've been way too focused on it. This really, really matters too much. It begins to be this like heavy, serious thing that I put way too much importance on. And it may be very, very important, but it begins to be so constricted and so in this box that I've lost the spark of any sort of fun or any sort of kind of hope or inspiration. So what I usually do in that circumstance is let it go completely, take a pause whether it's a pause for 24, 48 hours or a pause for um, if it's, and I've been uninspired in my yoga practice before. And then I've, I've, I've usually from too much teaching. And then we take a pause and go to India and practice and be a student for a month. So if there's a way to put it on pause and then maybe focus on something that's just entirely fun for you and then go back to it. Okay. Thank you. Um, yeah. Hold on. Yeah, I can I hear you? I think you mentioned two types of burnout, one for your practice and one for other stuff. Is that right? Well, it, it has happened in my yoga practice before. Um, but uh, I think that I've kind of done some of the same things that Kino has mentioned just by letting it go in my practice. Um, there's a lot of other circumstances that would make that happen, though. But um, the other event in my life is actually learning how to play an instrument, learning how to play a guitar. Um, there's, there's certain skills that I have in playing it when I'm trying to learn a different genre of music. It gets a little frustrating and there's different challenges that come up because of that. And when I take it too seriously, I think like you just said, which is exactly what I do over the last year, I just took it so seriously, like I almost blocked out a part of my life to doing nothing but that, that when challenges came up to where I just was not learning it or I, or I wasn't just wasn't clicking, then I got really kind of burned out on it, not angry at it because I couldn't do it, but just kind of exhausted to the point where it just kind of emotionally, I pushed it away. May I ask you, 
playing the guitar, is that a profession of yours or is that no, a hobby of yours? It's a hobby. Okay. Well, then I think it's pretty straightforward. You know, even if you let go of your guitar, you know, nothing, no one dies. Now, if it was your work, you know, you would lose your house and your mortgage and your marriage and your kids would starve to death. So <clears throat> uh, that would be harder place. But with our yoga practice and such a thing as uh, having a really fulfilling uh, hobby, such as playing guitar, whatever it could be, uh, I think potentially, uh, potentially he's pretty clear about it. He, he says, Stira Sukhamasanam. He says, the, what you apply yourself to, uh, apply yourself with discipline and firmness and conviction and um, dedication, no doubt about it. But if that's the only way in, you will lose it. You will literally burn out. You will not enjoy it anymore very quickly. So it's very important to acknowledge that there needs to be sukha. There needs to be sweetness in there too. And finding the balance is the, you know, meaning of life basically is the, you know, golden middle path. But I think we constantly have to weigh up like how much discipline, how much pleasure do I get back? How much discipline do I get? How much pleasure do I get back? And I think that for me too, in my yoga practice, if I go too disciplined for too long, I lose the joy. And it, it's my yoga practice or anything like that. And as a matter of fact, I think that whereas that sutra is very simple, I think it is uh, and so, or somewhat almost banal. I think um, it's worth a little bit of contemplation. Um, so whereas like learning a new genre on your guitar, like it should get you a bit frustrated, right? Like you do it so well and suddenly you have to do something new that you can do. It should get you a little bit frustrated. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Up until you have it to the same level as the techniques that you know already. But, you know, we have two ways to pursue anything in life. We can do it uh, as punishment to ourselves or we can do it and have the best time possible. And um, even at the end of learning that new genre of your guitar or putting both your legs behind your head and your practice or whatever it is that you're doing, or just putting both legs behind your practice again, you know, um, whatever it is, I think that it's questionable what we have achieved if we end up at the other end of the learning process with a state of ineffectiveness, such as burnout. And I think it would probably be better not to have both your legs behind your head or learn that genre and be in a state where you had more sweetness. So I would, uh, I use that a lot in my life. I try to pursue with, with dedication. And then I make sure to have the best time possible while I do it. Allow yourself to have that say, element say of enjoyment in it. To allow yourself to have that element of enjoyment in it. Yeah, man. Like, yeah, well, why, why not? You know, it's like, you know, what do they say? YOLO. You only got one life or something like that. I'm not sure that Patanjali agrees, but, you know, uh, 
I think at least this this moment, you know, these hundred years or eighty years or fifty years or whatever we got, they are significant. Enjoy it. It's like going to a party and say, "I must eat the two pieces of the uh, of the starter, and I must must drink at least three glasses of champagne, and I'm you know, and I must speak to minimum ten people. If not, it's been a bad night. Like, no, just go and enjoy and eat what you can, and you know, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like the same with life. Eat what you can. So for you, it's donuts. Yes, donuts. Insert, <laughs> insert donuts, whatever you do. Thank you. Thank you. Namaste. Thanks. We have a question from um, Noel, which I'll read for everyone as soon as I clip this on. No, I don't know if it's a good outfit for the microphone. Um, so, Noel, uh, hi, Noel, and thanks for practicing. So, I'm going to read Noel's whole. Um, uh, text in the chat. Noel says, believe it or not, someone in my house made me very angry in the five-minute break between class and meditation. I can definitely believe that. Um, <laughs> thus, I found it very hard to focus in meditation. Can you speak to how to address the emotion of anger during meditation? So first of all, Noel, um, this is life. People make us angry all the time. Um, me too. I sit with anger um, uh, like everyone else. There can be all sorts of irritating things that happen. Um, also, during the meditation, that some things can be irritating. Uh, life is generally, on some level, uh, includes a, a vast amount of irritating things. So it's a mistake to think that we only can sit when we feel good. In fact, when you're angry or when anger comes up for you, it is a wonderful opportunity to explore the sensory experience of your own anger. And I know that sounds like a, like a bitter pill to swallow, but I've done that myself. It's very difficult to sit in the midst of anger, your own anger, but the only way you can actually get the full somatic experience, meaning like the feeling in the body of your own anger yourself, is to sit with it and experience what you do when you're angry, what you do when you're angry. So this is what I do. I'm sitting here and then I feel the heat flushed. And so you keep it super equanimous and you make it totally okay that you're angry and you remove the other person from it and you keep the meditation focused entirely on your own sensory experience of anger. So it could look something like, bring the attention to the breath. The breath feels hot, heavy, and intense. And there's a burning sensation around my neck. I feel like my fingers are clenching. And back to the breath, still hot, heavy. It seems to be getting more rhythmic, almost like a tiger. Now, attention at the spine. I feel tension in my spine, burning sensations in my back. I feel aggression. I feel like I want to hit something back to the breath. And the idea is that if you can just keep feeling that, feeling that, feeling that, feeling that, number one, you make it not wrong. And as soon as you make it not wrong, it has the potential to flush through the body. Number two, you own your own anger, which is really important to do rather than blaming or projecting and saying, you made me like this. It's you, you experience it. And then number three, you can process it in that way. You get to know it. You become intimate with it. You become friends with it. And this is what's called befriending the dragon. And the idea is always that we think the dragon is outside, but the dragon is inside of us. And we're always looking for someone else to blame. Oh, you made me angry. Oh, you made me angry. Oh, you're irritating. Yeah, they're all irritating, but it's within you. You have that response because someone sitting next to you experiencing the same thing might not have that same response. So I'll share with you that during the meditation, I have a particular thing. Now all of you are going to hear this. So maybe, maybe, maybe this will change in the future. When the people come in and out through the back door of our stairs, there is a loud sound that comes, a slamming of the door. And I don't like that sound. 
So each time it happens, I want to look up and see who is the student that has slammed the door. <laughs> Let me observe who is coming up the stairs. Oh, look, if I like this student, somehow I'm easy to forgive them. You know, oh, okay, okay, they didn't know. But if it's someone that I think they should know better, then I'm like, hmm, you should know better. Why have you slammed the door? I try to forgive them, then go back to the meditation. It's all happening within myself. So I have the same thing. Now, you could, you could, this could happen at home also. You could be there, everything's silent, silent. I've had this happen many times at home. Wake up very early, try to sit in the silence. Then the husband wakes up. <laughs> the poor man has no idea that I'm in the other room. It's all dark. I have the candle on, looks very peaceful. Then he starts making coffee. <laughs> I'm thinking, what is that? He's making coffee. Why is he doing that now? He needs, he needs to get up and make coffee, the poor man, right? <laughs> and then I'm sitting there, I'm feeling heating, fire, the dragon is waking up. He has no idea. And then, and then worse, he goes to the bathroom. <laughs> exactly, towards him. He doesn't know that there's a dragon growing, 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 like Daenerys is getting her dragons on super growth hormones in the other room. And then, and then you know, and by the end, though, somehow after the hour, I sit with my stuff and then I do a little bit meta. I try to include him in the meta, <laughs> you know, but uh, so it's totally normal is what I'm trying to say with that. And don't think it's wrong. And it comes up over and over again. The classic thing that they say is particularly in mindfulness meditation, the centers will do everything within their power to remove all um, sounds because sounds uh, and disturbances, anything that could move you out of what's called your shila or your morality or, or what we would call the yamas and the niyamas and the, and the ashtanga path, anything that would move us out of that we try to remove. But even in the ideal situation, you're out in the countryside, everyone's taken a vow of noble silence. They're feeding you, you know, vegan food that's just perfectly designed for the meditation diet. And then still in this dimly lit room that's been put at the perfect temperature with multiple uh, acoustic, you know, dampeners around, then there comes a sound. And suddenly you hate that sound. <laughs> right? And so, it's, so, we're, so we're working with our stuff. So rather than think that that experience is taking you out of your meditation, that very experience is what we call the foundation of your meditation. Mm -hmm. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you have anything to add? There's many things to say. Like I was, there's so many things to say. Um, so again, we say that strong emotions such as anger, self-pity, um, jealousy, uh, fear comes from what Kino said before, mentioned before, the desire for a particular outcome from a craving. I want something particular and I'm not getting it. And that spurs uh, an emotion. So what yoga says is like, try to figure out what it is that you want. Um, what it is that you want that creates that emotion and that mental process and see if you can find a way to loosen the grip on that outcome. If you can be a little bit less interested in that particular outcome, if that is possible. Um, then also I thought like when I get angry, it is so uncomfortable. And uh, I get this feeling inside my body that I do not enjoy. And I get this head, this state of mind, um, where I feel I am inefficient in my thought process. 
I'm contaminated in my decision making. So I feel I take bad decisions when I'm angry. I say things, I formulate myself uh, inefficiently and so forth. So um, if I can bring myself out of the angry state and into a more comfortable state and a more quiet mind, my more, not necessarily quiet mind, but more calm mind, I feel I just function better. So from a completely selfish point of view, even though how um, uh, obstructive my wife has been to my coffee making, uh, I um, I end up in a situation where uh, if I can just modulate what's going on inside of me, my life is just sweeter for a little bit. Um, no matter how much of my wrath my wife dis dis deserves for like interrupting my cup of coffee, you know. <laughs> but um, so I kind of think about it like that a little bit. So if you can move into that fifth principles of the yama called aparigraha and then just like release a little bit of the craving and then as kino said just really try to feel your state your physical state next time you're there and just figure out if it's a state that you like and if it's not what are you willing to give up to uh, find a non-angry condition so to speak has a question. Um, Senia? No, Senia is on the computer. Oh, okay. Senia has a question. She typed it into the chat. It's a very simple question. Are either of us going to Canada this year? Uh, nope. <laughs> <laughs> Senia, I'm going to Canada. I'm going to Montreal. I think it's going to be in July. Um, so there's one other question from Sandra. Sandra says, I have a question if there's any time left. So we have time for Sandra? Okay, Sandra. Tim says we have time for you. So would you unmute yourself, please? Hi there. Hi, Tim. Hi, Kino. Um, so I just wanted to check in and see if you guys had any recommendations for practicing after COVID. I just got COVID this week. That's why I'm at home practicing. And this was my first practice back. And um, yeah, it was rough, but better, better than I expected. But, rough, but, you know, like the strength was better than I expected, but the flexibility was a lot tougher. And just wondered, you know, now that we're two years into it, if you have any tips or guidance for, you know, easing back into the practice after COVID. How many people in the room have had it? Many people. How many have had a flu? Yeah. yeah. How Everybody. many have ever had diarrhea? <laughs> <laughs> How many people has fallen down the stairs and hurt their knee? How many people have fallen up the stairs? And hurt their knee? <laughs> How many people have taken a long haul flight for 24 hours and had to practice next day? How many people uh, had to go and uh, to your in-laws for dinner and then to practice next morning? <laughs> How many people ate too much donuts? <laughs> I don't think it's possible to eat too much donuts. I think, Sandra, um, just remember that you're uh, the diligence that we put into our, our practice when we are at the <clears throat> optimal state um, is a different, uh, we take a different approach when we are not in our optimal state. Mm -hmm. And the primary series, for instance, is called Yoga Chikitsa, and that just means yoga therapy. So physical therapy, therapy for the body, 
therapy for you. So go in when you have um, been compromised, your physicality has been compromised somewhat and see what feels right. And that's the practice that you do. It might be the whole practice. It might be the whole practice modified. It might be half the practice. It might be a quarter of the practice. It might be sun salutations. It might be getting on your mat, lifting your arms and ekam and going, oh no. And then do <laughs> savasana or, you know, whatever it is that feels right for you. Um, you know, your body, you know, one of the symptoms, as far as I understand from COVID is fatigue. So, you know, if you push fatigue too much, it's not necessarily healthy. Whereas it's disciplined, it's not necessarily healthy. So find your way back, see what feels right. And when you feel ready to come back and share your COVID with us, we are very happy to receive you. That's good. Okay, right. thank you. Oh, I'm good. She has one question. Good luck with that, Sandra. Thank you. Good luck. Have a donut. <laughs> <laughs> Will do. We maybe do last question. Yeah. And then I so Vera has a question she says where she has practiced before she has been proposed to do a sound breathing by a student of, of Charlotte Joyce and then uh, Vera asked here at my life center it seems like we are even doing more than that we're doing more ujjayi breathing a little bit stronger perhaps even and she's asking what is the difference between sound breathing and ujjayi breathing and is there an evolution from one to the other and so forth Okay. All right. Well, Vera, you know, we're, are, we, we practice in Mysore when um, Patavi Joyce was in the room and Chatterjee and his mother, Saraswati, also in the room. So we continue our practice with Chatterjee now. Uh, so it's not like we don't make this division of we were students of Patavi Joyce and these are students of Sharad. We don't do like that. So we continue ourselves practicing in the lineage, you know. So first of all, there's that. Second of all, it is good to make the distinction between the ujjayi pranayama and deep breathing with sound. So ujjayi pranayama, Patabi Joy is taught within pranayama practice. So we say that the minimum to do the ujjayi pranayama is 10 second inhale, 10 second exhale. Continuously, continuously inhale, continuous exhale. And that there are th only three times during, as a minimum, you can increase up to one minute. So then this is a pranayama. You don't do this during asana practice, except for two asanas when we take a uh, Padmasana position at the end, and for the proficient student in headstand, in Shirshasana position, that student, they can do the, the 10 second inhale, 10 second exhale, those two postures, or longer if they can do longer, and those two asanas. The rest of the asanas, we do deep breathing with sound, but that deep breathing with sound is still rooted in the bandhas. So, you know, the, the breath, even though we're closing the throat a little bit, the power of the breath is still diaphragmatic, and the energy of the breath is still rooted in the pelvic floor and in Mula Bandha and Uriyana Bandha. So we have to find a way, sounds like for you, to do the bandhas, but to do them with less effort. So if you find that doing the bandhas and the breath makes you too tight and you need more flexibility in the body, then you have to find a way to do them more lightly so that they can be a pathway to flexibility rather than doing them too tightly and then you get too much strain, like what Tim was talking about, the balance between Shtera and Sukha. So one of the reasons why um, Shariji is saying sound breathing, sound breathing now is because people were trying to do one of two things. They were either breathing too quickly with no sound. So they don't breathe with any sound. They're just there like, 
they don't have any sound. So then he says, sound, breathe, like breathe with sound. And then the second thing is that if we, it, it, we, we say it's a pranayama practice when we're, when, when we're very still and our main focus is working with prana or breath. But if it's asana practice, our main focus is going to be asana. And then the breath is to support the asana, right? So this is, allows us during the asana practice to have a fluid breath. But Tabi Joyce used to say that the breath should range between minimum two-second inhale, two-second exhale, maximum seven-second inhale, seven-second exhale within the flow of your asana practice. Depending on the asana is difficult for you, you probably will breathe a little faster, not less than two-second inhale, two-second exhale. The asana is very easy for you. Some people, after lots of flexibility, Pashimatanasana can be so easy that they can end up taking two long breaths and lose the heat. So we say maximum seven seconds. He would say maximum seven second inhale, seven second exhale. Always the breath is even like this during asana practice. And ujjayi pranayama, the breath is also even. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, and it's good to get that flushed out. I don't think you are stiff. Okay. Not... Not anymore. <laughs> so the question that Linda says that it was nice to see that I was practicing and she asked me if I could describe what it was like to practice with Tim. So. <laughs> First of all, I'm happy to practice in any class. I like to be the student. I don't really mind who's teaching. I just, I, I prefer, my favorite role is the, the inspired student. I like to be a student. So I'm really grateful every time I get the chance to practice, whether it's this person, that person, this person, that person. I'm really, really, I'm really quite happy to just go and practice. So first of all, thank you for practice this morning. I'm super happy just to practice, you know. Um, second of all, uh, you know, I, 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 it's interesting when someone's your partner and they're teaching because... I do have this thing where I don't want to give up too much of my authority in my agency. So I'm like listening to him going like, eh, it's not for me. Eh, it's not for me. Yeah, yeah, it's very much, even less than Google. Um, Google, I'm going to give more to. <laughs> but, but, you know, and I think that's healthy uh, in terms of just like, like, like a partnership, like a marriage, you know. Tim, when he's practicing in my class, like, like you also do it too, you know. At some moment, you're just like, eh, <laughs> not for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I think that's, I personally think that's kind of that's a, that's a healthy, especially for for partners. Um, the other thing that comes that I think comes up for both of us is when we take classes of people that um, that are students of ours or work with us, that we have kind of like a dual role that we occupy. Like we're kind of practicing, and we're also like, how are they doing? Oh, that's good. Oh, they're doing well. Okay, okay, jump back. You know, and so it's like a dual role in some moment. Not to make any of you nervous who are doing that, but uh, you know, but the but they're, they're, and, and I think it's important to occupy those different spaces. You know, um, and and even so, again, no matter who you're practicing with, I gen like I said in the talk, I genuinely believe to keep a little bit of your own agency so that you can always make that evaluation. Ah, it's not healthy for me. I'm not going to do it. I, you know, I feel my shoulders not good. I'm only going to jump back between the sides or just one comes up and it's too fast for you. One of the biggest things that can come up in a guided class, if it's too fast for you, you can, I find if it's too fast, 
that's where I see the students struggle. And that's why I myself struggle. So I'm never, I don't care. And I did in your class this morning and I do it with Jedergy and it's to do with Patabi Joyce. They never said anything to me. Uh, if I need to go slower, I go slower. Never, 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 because I look, I'm like, I'm focusing, I'm drying, I'm breathing, I'm focusing. And I never yell at the student to go slower. Now, too fast. If the student is too fast, there's something else. <laughs> right? But, but I, and I think that's, if you feel like the count is too fast for you at any time to go a little slower so you can be with your breath and your body is, is like the primary important thing to do. And this is why guided class is so much more challenging than Mysore class. In the Mysore class, you sit there and you're like, okay, let me negotiate between my hips and my back. And then they do like, like a peace process. And then they're like negotiating. And then one side give a little, and this side didn't give any, whatever, and you continue. And then you do the other side. And then it takes time. In the guided class, it's like, Sapta, inhale. Ashtar go down. And the two sides are like, we're still at war. You know, and you're like, ah, okay, well, we just do something. And primary series is one thing, but I know that but many people, for example, in a lead intermediate series class, this is where a fast count can be very, um, very challenging for many people. Yeah. You want to share what it's like to practice in my class? You know what you often ask me when you're about to come to class? Tim says, are you going to be nice today? <laughs> <laughs> I will come if you're nice. <laughs> so so i'm never in keynes class anymore so i think you know a long time ago uh, kino and i when we first met we um we were helping each other with practice together and then we would ask each other to assist each other and we stopped doing that because we were so picky you know it's like oh that left leg could have been a little bit better like that. You know, that right foot. Oh, when you grab my elbow to put my hand there, it's like I didn't quite like, you know, maybe you could, you know, rotate it a little, you know. At some moment, I think we got so sick of ourselves and each other. So we agreed um, that if we asked for an assist, then if we didn't get injured, that was a bit bonus. <laughs> you know, just like take it all the way down, you know, all the expectations to the minimal. Um, and I think we, we kind of, uh, because we're married, we try not to take authority on each other's practice, you know, uh, like if, if you notice, I didn't assist Kino today either. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I think we tried to, actually. I think we tried to be supportive and then go home and be married after. It's better. <laughs> Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, 
I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.